I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on this week's episode. Another big-time commitment for the Gators. We'll review where the class of 2024 stands. Uh, it's time for the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Florida versus Georgia, orange and blue versus red and black. The 50-50 split in the stadium. Uh, good guys versus the bad guys, whatever you want to call it. The RVs are already set up. They're ready to go in Jacksonville, and we'll give you our thoughts on the game to wrap up the show. We'll we'll dive right in. LJ McCray, six foot six, two sixty out of Daytona Mainland, five star defensive lineman, number six player on the board nationally in twenty four seven Sports per Andrew Ivins of the same establishment, a long limbed defensive lineman with the ingredients needed to bake into a true nuisance up front. Had to share that. That's a that's a good way to say that there, Andrew. 15 tackles for a loss and seven sacks through eight games this season. That's notable, Will, because he only had three sacks last season as a two-way player, playing a little tight end, uh, H-back type situation there in the mainland offense. Uh, hey, might lack some polish at this stage, according to Ivins, but has gotten more and more active with his hands and could become an absolute chore to handle with improved upper body strength. Ivan's ended up saying he can create pressure from both the inside and outside and is the type of body that can fit into a variety of different schemes and alignments with his rare features. He has bona fide NFL upside with these traits. Will and Andrew Ivan's 24 seven they're sold on this pick. This is now the top rated recruit in an already stacked class of 2024. Yeah, so I mean, I guess it depends on which recruiting service you're using and how you're putting them together in terms of defining that. So I tend to use a 24-7 composite, which has him as the fourth-ranked recruit and 57th overall, um, mainly because he's ranked eighth overall by on three, sixth overall by 24-7, 23rd overall by ESPN, and then 250th overall by Rivals. So Rivals is either going to be crowing about how, how right they were on this one or they're going to be blasted for how wrong they were. And I suspect that over the course of the year that – uh, that 250 ranking is going to come more in line with the other three, which probably means he's going to be a consensus five-star by the time this is all, all done. But I mean, look, we've all seen Florida struggle to get pressure this year, right? And so big time get for Billy Napier, bringing in a guy who's being pursued by Alabama and Auburn and Georgia and those are and Miami and Florida State. Those are the, those are the programs that were after LJ McCray. They all saw that he was an excellent player and somebody that they wanted to add. And then the other thing, and we've talked about this extensively. You talked about it in our preseason magazine when you sort of you know mapped out where Florida's recruits were from for the 2023 class. The Billy Napier has really sort of started from the outside in, which is a little bit of an unusual way to do things. But a lot of guys from Texas, a lot of guys who are not necessarily homegrown prospects. And even this year, you got DJ Lagway and Xavier Filsame, who are who are two five-star candidates who are from the state of Texas. And so this guy's from Daytona Beach. When you have a five-star or borderline five-star, however you want to rank, and when you got a guy who's in the top 60 who's in Daytona beach, that guy needs to be a Gator. You can't have that guy go to Miami. Can't have that guy go to Florida state. You sure as heck can't have that guy go to Georgia or Alabama or Clemson. That guy has to be a Gator. And the fact that Napier wanted this guy and they've got this guy says a lot about where they're headed. This 2024 class looks awesome. And uh, McCray's a big part of that. Well, let's talk about the 2024 class. Well, the addition of McCray gives Napier his third five-star according to 24 seven in the class. Like you said, joining Lagway and Phil same. Defensive line, if you look at the front, Will, 
Amaris Williams, Jamonta Waller, both pushing on the edge of the five-star rating. They're currently at four stars. But Nasir Johnson, a solid four-star player out of Georgia there. Kendall Jackson, three-star, but super athletic, is is going to – seems like he has the potential to be a problem up front as well, but they really help round out a formidable defensive line group. If you combine that with the linebacker class of Graham, Darius Hayes, and Aaron Childs, Florida's front seven is going to look a whole lot different a year or two from now than it does right now. Well, good, because when we get to the Georgia part, we're going to have to talk about Florida's defense, and that's not going to be all that pretty, which means uh, they need help there. They need reinforcements there. I think Napier and and Patrick Tony and now Austin Armstrong have realized that that's a place where they need help, a place where they need to make real inroads at the high school recruiting level. And look, I mean, Florida State under, under Norvell decided to raid the transfer portal. They got their quarterback in Jordan Travis and they went for it, right? Napier has has taken a different tact. He has decided to go high school recruiting. I think we're going to look up three, four, five years from now and say that was the right way to go. Now, obviously, he has to maintain this. We saw with Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M, one giant class does not make a program. And he sort of started at a place where Florida kind of was last year in that 11, 12, 13 range rose up all the way to the number one class and then sort of fell down into that six to eight range. And they haven't really been able to capture the magic. He's still going to have to find that quarterback, right? If Connor Wegman had been a star at Texas A&M, then nobody's talking about Jimbo Fisher's buyout right now. Wegman gets hurt. Wegman wasn't great when he was playing anyway. He wasn't bad, but he wasn't great. And all of a sudden people are trying to figure out how do we get Bobby Petrino to coach this team without having to cough up $70 million to get Jimbo Fisher out the door. The reality is, is regardless of what happens with this class, it's setting up Florida to be really, really good in the future. But you still need DJ Legway to be a star in order to make everything go. And and honestly, everything he's doing in high school thus far indicates that that is his future, which is awesome because you've got him in this class. This class is all going to come of age with DJ Lagway and sort of sets yourself up. Given the amount of freshmen who've played this year and given what Floor's already gotten out of his 2023 class, I think that's probably more than we would have expected out of that class, given where it ranked and given some of the some of the evaluations there. So, hey, the staff seems to have done a really good job with that. There's not nearly as much attrition as there was in the previous staff with some of those classes that were rated a little bit lower. And so if you get a little bit more out of the 2023 class than you originally anticipated, you get this one to come in, grow with DJ Lagway. And if Lagway turns into a star, Napier is set up to make this Florida Georgia game considerably more competitive in the next few years, because look, Florida right now, average player rating is 92.67 on the 24 seven composite. That's ahead of Alabama. So that's third overall. It's ahead of Alabama. It'll actually be a little bit difficult for Alabama to catch up unless Florida decides to fill out the class with three-star guys to sort of drag down that rating. But the other thing is Florida has an opportunity, and I don't think they'll probably get this done, but they have an opportunity. If they end up getting Jordan Seaton, if they end up flipping Jeremiah Smith from Ohio State, if they get Xavier Mincy, who's a high-level four-star that they're still after, if they get Charles Lester to flip from Florida State, and if they get Jamari Howard, who's a four-star linebacker or a four-star cornerback, if they get those five guys to fill up this class to 27, they will end up with three, a point total of 315, which would be ahead of Georgia. They would have an average player rating of 93.59, which would be ahead of Georgia right now, 93.54. There is a possibility that they can still catch the Bulldogs. Now, is that likely? I don't think so. Best case scenario. But, but I mean, you know, you're talking now five, five stars, 17, four stars, five, three stars, 27 total recruits. And Georgia right now has 27 commits. 
in their class. So if they can match that level and if they can bring in guys in that borderline four-star, five-star territory from here on out, they got a chance to, to, to match the Bulldogs last year at this time, they barely had an opportunity to get in the top 10, even if they'd close with that level of player this year, you're talking about being able to potentially put together the best class. If they can finish out that way, it's just a completely different discussion from 2023 to 2024. Yeah, the fact that we're even having the conversation about catching Georgia in this class is it's but it's why Napier was brought on. This is the difference that this fan base wanted to see. This effort and and uh attention to recruiting, it's starting to pay off. You're starting to see the Napier plan really blossom in his second full cycle. I know you had the shorter cycle last year, he, he had the NIL stuff coming into play. They seem to have got a lot of stuff straightened in the in the offseason, and man. Has it just taken off since DJ Lagway came aboard last December? Uh, going back to McCray here, Will, you're looking at UGA, Miami, FSU is in the mix, but really FSU's been a player this cycle as well. They're right there with Florida in the standings. They've pulled off a few big gets on the trail as well. Really that Georgia, FSU, Florida, that seemed to be the mix for McCray to come out on top, not only to get one over Georgia, but to get one over FSU as well with this McCray pickup absolutely huge for Napier and the staff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we've been saying all along and, and I've been harping on it for years now that you need top three classes to compete because the top, because in order to be in the top two in the sec, you have to be in the top three in the country. Sometimes you even have to be in the top two in the country to be in the top two in the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's a huge drop-off from the second-rated team in the conference from a recruiting perspective to the third-rated team. There's a lot more inconsistency for that third-rated team. And you don't have to look very far other than looking to LSU. That's kind of the type of team that even if you're recruiting in the four to nine range overall nationally, LSU has some years where they're up and they have some years where they're down. There's a lot more inconsistency at LSU than there is at Alabama or than there has been at Georgia the last few years. And that in many ways is a complete function of where they sit. So Napier has accomplished what he needed to accomplish in 2024. That I mean, there there's no way they're going to drop out of the top five, given the numbers that I'm looking at right now. Tennessee is sixth. Their average play rate is 91.7. They're, they would have to essentially finish the same way I said Florida would finish, and Florida would have to just fill out the class with three stars. And even then, I don't think Tennessee gets to catch them. So they've guaranteed themselves a top-five class. <clears throat> They're almost surely going to stay in that three or four range, Alabama might be able to catch them, but they're going to stay right in that range. And what that means is that they're recruiting upon, not just in, not just in the top echelon in, in the country, but in the top echelon in the sec, they're not competing right. with these guys. And it's not just, Oh, we were in the final three for LJ McRae. Oh, he had our hat on the table and he decided to troll us. It's like, no, LJ McRae put on the Florida Gator hat. That makes, that is a huge deal, especially when you consider, look, Florida's five and two this year. So it hasn't been a disaster but it's not like there's been a whole lot of great like it's it's not like this has been like just momentum 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 florida has not been ranked for most of the year um you know you get the you get the stink bomb against utah and then the bad game against kentucky and the offense hasn't looked all that great and honestly the defense hasn't looked that great recently and none of that matters right it turns out recruiters recruit and the NIL has made a difference. I think that's certainly clear that NIL has made a difference. The formation of the Florida Victorious versus the the previous NIL institutions that were in place clearly has made a difference. And then, um, again, recruiters recruit, which means we should see this same stuff 
2025. And if we don't see this kind of same class in 2025, then what that means is that NIL made a huge difference and the funds came <laughs> the, the The funds were limited for the 2025 class. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully what ends up happening is, is that the system has now been put in place to be able to do this year over year over year. And as long as they do that, Florida is going to be competing for championships pretty quickly. Well, I, I would love to not open the Florida Georgia show next year with a recruiting uh, analysis. Uh, we got all off season for that, but this was a big one. You had to do it. And if you look at the trend, Will, last season, I believe it was either the week of the Georgia game or the week before the Georgia game. It was in, in, in between that bye week in Georgia, Cormani McLean was also set to commit. And I know Florida had felt good about that one. We all know the Cormani McLean story. We don't need to revisit it. But it seems like, do are we seeing a trend here with the timing in terms of a big announcement uh, year to year? You think uh, Napier wants to – Napier has a way with the calendar. He seems to really target that that bye week. I know it's only a couple of years, not a lot of data to go off of, but just kind of kind of an interesting coincidence then maybe. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think there's probably some value to it, but pay attention LJ, next year. We'll see if it becomes a trend next. I year. mean, if LJ McCray committed three weeks ago, we would have spent time during the during the during the show to talk about it, right? It just so happens that um, it would have been nice if we did it last week, so we had something to talk about during the bye week, as opposed to doing it over the weekend, so that then we have to talk about it during Florida Georgia week. But um, you know, look, I, is he manipulating the calendar? I, maybe. Do I care? No. Just just get the best players in there on uh, early signing day because that's really when this is over these days is early signing day. Just get the best players to sign on the dotted line, send their facts in, whatever they're doing these days on uh, you know in December when early signing day comes around. And uh, you know, that that's when it counts, right? Because look, McCray committed to them. I don't doubt that he's going to end up being a gator, but and there are a lot less flips than you actually think when you go look at the data. But you know, until he signs on the dotted line in December. Um, there's always an opportunity for somebody else to come in and snipe any one of these recruits. And so Napier, you know, you can't spend a whole lot of time trolling your opponents. You got to spend time just making sure you build these relationships. And I'm guessing it has more to do with when the kids actually want to announce than it does with some sort of calendar stuff that Napier's got set up. Well, merging the two subjects here, Will, we're seeing we might not catch Georgia with this class, but this is the type of class you need to start closing the gap and, and start. I, I mean, we're staring – what are we staring at? Another uh, three touchdown, three touchdown spread here, or did it go down? It went <laughs> two, down to fourteen two, half. It started out, half, yeah. started out around was it twenty two? It started <laughs> at, it go down. Yeah, well, then they found out Brock Bowers was up. Yeah, Brock Bowers. That injury is pretty big here, but yeah. So we're looking at uh, uh, you know what third year in a row here at, at three touchdown down to two touchdown spread here, but. So technically closing the gap if you want to look at it like that. But this type of class here, this type of pickup, these are the type of pickups that that someone like Will has been hammering for years now that we need to get in order to close this gap on Georgia, Will. But we still got a game to play this weekend. Uh, hey, this Georgia team, it, they look more vulnerable than the, than the previous two versions. However, they're still pretty, pretty doggone good, Will. Uh Big piece missing here with Brock Bowers. We'll talk about that in the offensive portion, but we'll start off with the Florida offense. Will uh, the Georgia defense allowing no more than 21 points so far this season and only three fourth quarter touchdowns. If you want to get them, get them early and then see what you can do late. Will, do you anticipate Graham Mertz building on the performance, the passing performance we saw at South Carolina? I don't know about building on it. I think if he can just maintain it, that's probably 
um, that probably is building because the Vanderbilt and the South Carolina defenses are bad, right? And and let's be honest, the, like we have to at least assess things through a realistic lens. Those two defenses were have made a lot of quarterbacks get healthy this year, and Georgia has kept a lot of, a lot of quarterbacks from from appearing healthy. Now they don't put a ton of pressure on you, and so there is an opportunity for Mertz to probably like the big drawback for Mertz has been he hasn't been able to go downfield. Part of that is just his personality in general. Seemed like they loosened that up a little bit last week or two weeks ago against South Carolina. And then the other aspect is, is that he really takes a lot of sacks, just takes a ton of sacks. And so if you look at him and Bowers, throwing, or him and Beck for, for Georgia, throwing the ball through the air, those two guys are pretty much equivalent in terms of QB rating, completion percentage, yards per attempt, yards per completion. Like, they're pretty close. Beck's, Beck, Beck's probably played a little bit better, but the QB ratings are basically equivalent. But when you look at my rating for him, yards above replacement, Beck's way better. And the reason is is because he's got, like, 50 rushes for, you know, for 100 yards, and and um, and Mertz is at, like, 50 rushes for negative 40 yards. And so that is a direct reflection of sacks. So – I'm not asking Graham Mertz to go out and run for 80 yards. I'm not asking him to run the read option. What I'm asking for is when you're in trouble and when you're going to get brought down to get the ball past the line of scrimmage towards a receiver and just make it an incompletion. And if he ends up this game with, say, two rushes for negative eight yards, then I think we're going to look and say he played a really good game. If he ends up with eight rushes for negative for 14 yards, we're going to go, whoo, that was rough. Because, you know, the 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 reality is because of the way sacks get factored into rushing um, and because oftentimes those sacks are because a quarterback has to make an adjustment for the blocking scheme for the line or because the quarterback has to not run out of bounds behind the line of scrimmage or the quarterback has an opportunity to get the ball away and decides not to and double clutches and ends up getting hit, whatever whatever the case might be. Sacks sometimes are on the quarterbacks, and Florida, <laughs> Florida is averaging um, is averaging more than two and a half sacks per game of Mertz. That can't happen in this game. So two point seven one is what Florida's averaging per game. Georgia's averaging zero point eight six sacks per game allowed. And so now Georgia hasn't gotten a lot of pressure. So that'll be the question, right? Can can Florida's offensive line hold up against a team that isn't necessarily designed to get pressure? And then can Merch take advantage of it? Again, I don't think we're going to see some giant step forward, but if he ends up with a QB rating of around 160 at the end of this one, I think we're all going to be happy with the way the Gators move the ball through the air. Would you be surprised if he didn't push the ball deep like he did against South Carolina again? I think a lot of it's going to have to do with what Georgia does. Now, I, I suspect that Kirby Smarts looked at that South Carolina tape. South Carolina played a lot of man-to-man. When they played man-to-man, he opened up a lot of big shots downfield, and Mertz took them. Um, in the past, when when the opposition's played man-to-man, Mertz hasn't necessarily taken those shots. Um but you don't necessarily have to play man-to-man either if you can stop the run. So I expect Kirby to play a lot of too high safeties, a lot of shell coverages, play some man-to-man underneath, and then just dare Florida to run the ball. Typically, Georgia just has a light box, six guys in there, and says run the ball. And then their defensive line is really adept at clogging things up, allowing the linebackers to roam, and then the linebackers clean everything up. But still, you know, we talk feed two, feed seven. We've been doing that all year. You've really been doing that all year. And that's true. I think they're going to have to find some unique ways to get the running game going in order to get Georgia to come out of those shells. So if they can do some things. So like the first play against Vanderbilt was something that I think was really telling is they threw a little swing pass to Montrell Johnson. Now, Johnson dropped the ball. 
but he also had a wide open lane to go run. He was it was him one on one against the safety the way Florida had the thing blocked, and it was going to be an eight, nine, ten yard run. And if he made that safety miss, it was going to be a twenty five or thirty yard run. Now look, George is faster than that. You're not faster than Vandy. Certainly more skilled than Vandy, but the same thing is going to apply. I think they're going to have to get their running backs out on the edge. Might mean we see more Trey Wilson back there. Obviously, the play that everybody points to is the toss that they that they that they threw out to Wilson with Montrell Johnson as the lead blocker um, in the game against South Carolina. I think there's some other things they could do off of that that maybe will open some stuff up. But to me, this one still comes down to Flor- Georgia is going to dare Florida to run the ball. And they're going to try to keep everything in front of them and force Florida to go you know, 14, 15, 16 plays. And when they get in the red zone, then they'll tighten stuff up and they'll rely on the fact that they can get a sack of Mertz to kill a drive. And then Florida ends up settling for three. If Florida ends up settling for three in the red zone, they're not going to be able to stop Georgia enough on the defensive side of the ball to, to keep up with what Georgia's going to be able to score. And so I think there's going to be cat and mouse, obviously, you know, Kirby isn't just going to sit in a cover two the entire time, but on key downs, I think it will be really interesting to see what what he's doing with his safeties, what opens up. I, I think the average depth of the target will probably be farther than it has been most of the year because I think Mertz is starting to gain some confidence in the offense and his ability to go downfield. I think the addition of Arliss Boardingham also gives him another option that he's got some confidence in as opposed to just Ricky Pearsall. But uh, it would not surprise me if this is another 70 to 75% completion percentage where we're saying, God, he just didn't drive the ball downfield that much. Because if they can't run the ball, they're not going to make – like there's not going to be an opportunity to push it down the field. That would be disappointing to see us step back in that area here. So ETN will come in. You know, he's he's been dealing with a little bit of an injury, been a little banged up, uh, played in the last game here. Are you anticipating uh, he- a heavy workload for ETN in this game? So I'm actually expecting the running backs to get quite a quite a bit of a workload, but I'm expecting them to get get it more through the air. So if you look at um, the last three times Florida or the last three times Georgia's lost or when it's been close. Um, so when Florida beat Georgia in 2020, they ran the ball 37 times for 97 yards. So it's not like they were lighting things up. Um, last season, Ohio State almost beat beat Georgia in the Peach Bowl. They ran the ball 32 times for 119 yards. So again, mm. not really lighting them up. And when Alabama beat them in the 2021 SEC championship game, they had 26 rushes for 115 yards. So again, not really lighting them up. The one thing that really jumped out to me when I look back at the 2020 game in particular, Florida's running backs caught 10 passes for 212 yards in that game. Uh, the Gators clearly were going after Georgia's linebackers. And some of the things that Florida did in 2020 show up in the Ohio State tape last year. Now, C.J. Stroud made a lot of plays to his wide receivers because he was able to dance around back behind the line of scrimmage, get away from pressure and make plays. Grammertz isn't that kind of guy, which means the game with Trask, I think, is actually a better type game plan to look back at and say, look, Trask is a better player than Mertz. At the same time, very similar types of players, right? Trask wasn't going to go out there and run the read option that much. In fact, you didn't really want him running the read option. And what they did was they did a lot. They did a bunch of unique things to isolate running backs on linebackers. And if you go back and look at the Ohio State game, they actually put a wide receiver on a a key touchdown play. They put a wide receiver in the backfield and had him run straight down the field. And then they had routes that split the safeties 
and threw it to the wide receiver straight down the field. That's something I think that you can exploit if you put Trey Wilson back there say, and just have him run right down the field. Trey Wilson in the backfield a couple snaps there? Well, I'll tell you, that is how you go downfield against a defense when you're playing shell coverage, is you send your receivers on a bunch of out routes, get the safeties to split, and when those safeties split, you send either a tight end or a running back right down the field. Sure. So, again, I, I think – it was interesting. So the 10 passes for 212 yards in that game to the running backs, six passes for 149 yards to the tight ends in that game. So the passes to the running backs averaged 21.2 yards per, per catch. The passes to the tight ends averaged 24.8 yards per catch. And then the, the passes to the wide receivers in that 2020 game averaged 8.1 yards per catch. So the wide receivers were RPOs, slants, getting it out quickly when Georgia was blitzing the linebackers. And then when Georgia didn't have the linebackers blitzing that was when they targeted the linebackers with the tight ends and with the running backs i think that's still the way you have to attack the georgia defense and we'll see whether napier's got a few wrinkles specifically with trey wilson to try to isolate those guys it'll be interesting to see let's uh move on to the defensive side of the ball here will maybe the less fun part of the matchup here i i want to talk about georgia's offense real quick i'm noticing it i, I went back watched a lot of georgia in the last week here they have been prone to some slow moments, and I think people have picked up on that. And, hey, Georgia looks human this year. But they have what I call the Golden State effect. You know, I, I'm not a huge NBA guy, but third quarter Golden State, they come out, they just can just bury opponents, even if it's a close first half a lot of the time. So can you survive the onslaught is the question. Vandy. 27 straight points after going down 7-0. Kentucky, 21-0 after the first three drives. They scored 44 points in the first eight of nine drives. In the Auburn game, 17-3 run in the last 20 minutes, scoring on the final three drives before kneeling. UAB, they scored TDs in the final three drives of the first half and the first two drives of the second half. So five drives in a row, touchdowns gets UAB. Carolina, South Carolina, down 14-3 at the half. Most of us saw that game. They scored touchdowns on three of their first four drives after the half, and the only non-scoring drive will miss 43-yard field goal after driving the ball 64 yards. Ball State and UT Martin, four straight scoring drives, which yielded 24 points to close out the first half in both in both of those games. We saw when Florida last year, I know it's different teams and everything, but we saw a similar effect last year when Florida closed the gap to 28-20 to in the third what do we see the next two drives back back touchdowns so can we avoid the onslaught from this offense is a big question like this they might have a couple of slow drives here and there beck yeah he is averaging over 300 yards per game 12 touchdowns four ints for uh, the jacksonville native mandarin mustangs for you people in duval county there uh beck's back in town uh solid producer overall but he he will make a couple mistakes here and there. He's fumbled a couple times. He's, he's got those four interceptions. Well, and a little over 23% of his completions so far have gone to tight end Brock Bowers. And we know that Bowers suffered a high ankle sprain versus Fandy and is out for this game. Uh, will this, this offense, it looks, it looks different than what we saw under Munkin the last few years here, but there's a lot of new pieces. Uh, certainly Beck stepping in is a different deal. They're still rolling in stretches. It's just might not be as clean at times, but they still have those moments where they can get white hot on you. I mean, so look, Georgia is 
not the team they were last year. Um, last year they rolled through everybody. There's a stat I really like. It's called post game win percentage. Collegefootballdata.com has it, and it's basically if you took the statistical profile of the game and played the game over again, what percentage of the time would a team win? And last year, I think there was one game where Georgia was under 100 percent during the regular season, and it wasn't the Missouri game. The Missouri, the Missouri game, because of the turnovers and that sort of stuff. The post-game win percentage suggests that Georgia dominated that game. They just sort of got a little bit unlucky in terms of some of the things that were going on that kept it close. So we looked at that Missouri game, and that was the one shot, right? It was a shot where they outplayed Missouri other than the turnovers. It was sort of a weird game. Stetson Bennett missed some really key third-down throws, and all of a sudden the game is somewhat close towards the end, and Georgia's able to come back and win. This year there have been a few of them. The Auburn game was down at like 91% Georgia. They had a couple of 98 percenters, um, and they really haven't played anybody either other than those te- other than the teams that Florida's played as well, sort of the, the, the common opponents. Um, So they've beaten those teams handily, but they haven't beaten them like they did last year. So there is a little bit of, of, of hope there. When you look at it overall points per game, they're eighth in the country against FBS opponents. They're seventh in yards per play. They're 22nd in yards per rush and they're 19th in yards per pass. So, it's one of those things where they don't have this dominating rushing offense. They don't have a dominating passing offense, but they have both that are pretty good. And when you combine that, they end up with a dominating offense. That's sort of where it ends up. Um, it's very different than their defensive profile, where they're also eighth in points per game allowed and seventh in yards per play allowed, but they're 27th in yards per rush and third in yards per pass allowed. So there, they're doing the yeoman's work against the pass. Um, it's different on the offensive side of the ball. So what that means is if you can take away one aspect of what they're doing, well, now all of a sudden you can make them one-dimensional and that combination, the synergy of those two things no longer no longer works together and they're going to struggle a little bit. So in the first half against South Carolina, for instance, Carson Beck really struggled. Georgia actually ran the ball pretty decently in that first half, but Beck struggled and all of a sudden it's 14-3 to South Carolina. They come out in the third quarter. And Beck all of a sudden was hitting everything that he threw, and they just dominate him there in the third quarter. I think it was, I think it was twenty four to, I think it was twenty four to fourteen before the end of the third quarter, and that's sort of where the game wound up. Um, those sorts of things, like Florida's going to have to pick its poison. They're going to have to decide what they take away, and they're probably going to decide that based on configuration. There was a really good, uh, um, I mentioned on Gators Breakdown the other day. I can't remember the Twitter handle, but it's a Georgia account um, or a Georgia Georgia media account was looking at Carson Beck. I think you sent it to me actually, where um, they were looking at Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt played a, a lot more quarters than some of the previous opponents. That and Beck really struggled against quarters coverage. And then anytime they played any kind of man to man, all of a sudden he was picking them apart. Now, obviously, some of that is with Bowers, but that does lend some credence to what you can do. That if you play a ton of coverage, you dare them to run the ball, you make them go down the field again in 12, 13, 14 plays. Will they screw up? Will Beck throw an interception? Will he try to force it into coverage? I think a bend but don't break strategy against Georgia is probably the best way to go. I'm just not sure if Florida's capable of playing a bend but don't break strategy. Um, they did a little bit against Tennessee, but Tennessee's a different cat than these guys, and um, you know we'll we'll see what what the Gators do. Um, but I think that's one of the things we should be looking for: is do they go? Do they do the same thing Georgia does to everybody, where you play a light box, you dare them to run the ball, you're playing a nickel, you're playing a ton of coverage, you're playing either either two high safeties or or cover three or even cover four, where you're playing the the quarters coverage, and just say, look. 
we're not going to let Beck beat us deep. We're not going to give up giant explosive passing plays. We'll give up some shots down the seam that, you know, for 20, 22, 23 yards. We'll give up screen passes to the running backs. We'll put our linebackers man to man against linebackers and tight ends, but we're not going to allow their wide receivers to kill us down the field. I think that's probably the right way to go, but we'll see what Austin Armstrong has in store. Brock Bowers being out for this game, Will. I think sometimes when you play another team, you know, you're pretty familiar with the star players on, on a lot of other rosters in the SEC. And sometimes it's more hype. They're, they're, they're more hype than they're actually worth on the field. I don't think Brock Bowers is one of those guys. I think this is a massive, massive injury missing Bowers. I, I thought he bailed them out of that Auburn game. For whatever reason, the guy just does not get tackled. I mean, I mean, I think the reason is that he's like six foot seven and can run like a deer. I think that's probably the reason. But he, he just runs through people. He, I can't tell you how many times you, you watch the guy and he just make a catch. The, his yak yardage is, is just unbelievable. The guy, the guy can make plays with the ball. He doesn't look super fast doing it. Uh, they do have a good backup tight end, Oscar Delp. Uh, he's also a pretty athletic dude. Make, makes a lot of plays for the dogs. That only has. 13 catches on the year, but no doubt a result of playing a little bit behind Bowers there. But, Will, this is their first full game in 2023 without Bowers. Beck's first full start without Bowers. How significant is the loss for Georgia? Oh, I mean, it's enormous for them on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, take Florida's offense and remove Ricky Pearsall. And what does the offense look like? And you go, oh, well, we can put – you know, we can slide someone over into that spot. Yeah, you can. That there, You will still have 11 guys on offense. But Ricky Pearsall makes such a huge difference for that offense that, um, you know, everything tilts his way and it opens up stuff for other guys. And the same thing is true for Brock Bowers. The other thing is, is Bowers is a good blocker, which means he puts you in really tough situations. Like I just mentioned, is Florida going to go with a light box? Well, Bowers is, is in tight to the formation you can't go with a light box because all of a sudden now there's a huge numbers disadvantage and you can't just bring a star or a corner or even a safety up to take him one-on-one he'll run you over and all of a sudden now you're getting gashed on the ground because he's a blocking threat and the problem is is that you have to use a safety or somebody better to guard him in coverage and you have to use a linebacker to take him on when he's actually blocking for the run game and that is the huge part that's and, – and that's the other thing is that Darnell Washington was behind him last year or was with him on the field last year. And so Florida had – or so Georgia had two of those guys. And so it's not to me just that they, they're losing Bowers. It's that they now have lost both of those guys who have, who have sort of established the identity that they have on offense and what they're trying to do, right? And so one of the reasons Bowers bounces off of people is because he's bouncing off of safeties and corners. And so he's just a big six, dude. Six who bounces four, off by the guys. way. Correction. I, I had Washington in my mind when I was saying six seven for the record. <laughs> well Washington was similar in terms of the yeah. way he did it. So look, there's probably some five star kid who's gonna step in who's a true freshman who's gonna who's gonna be just as physically good. Delp's a good player. He's a good player. But the but, but look, Bowers though. But Bowers is a special player, and yeah. it's it's like everybody was like, "Oh, well, we'll have uh, Keon Zipper step into the Kyle Pitts role. It'll it'll be a drop off, but it won't be that much." It's like it turns out when those guys who are transcendent players are out, it's really hard to find somebody to replace them. And you see that at quarterback all the time, sort of the most glaring. But that's true at any spot, right? I mean, how long have we been looking for the next Percy Harvin? And there is no next Percy Harvin because that guy's uniquely gifted. And so George is going to spend the next decade looking for the next Brock Bowers, and there won't be a next. Brock Bowers because he's a special gifted player and so when you lose a guy like that it makes a huge huge difference all that being said 
Florida's defense is sort of ranked where Vanderbilt and South Carolina are. And that to me is going to be the question is, is does it matter? <laughs> right? Like, like if, if Florida's defense isn't able to show up and really sort of establish who they were, maybe the first two or three games of the year versus who they've been the last two or three games, then, you know, Bauer's absence is going to be minimal because, you know, George is going to be running up and down the field. If they can reestablish some of that and sort of you know mimic that Auburn game where all of a sudden Georgia needs to play, well, Bauer or Beck not having his security blanket, not having the guy he looks to, not having that set of plays that Mike Bobo just says every week we're going to call these plays and your first, second, and third read is, is Brock Bowers. Don't come off of him until you're sure they've triple teamed him and you've got somebody open someplace else. I think that will go away, which means if it's tight at the end, you might see some mistakes because it'll be just foreign to Beck having to do something other than throw to a star tight end. Love it. Rosemary, Jack Saint, and Rob Ra Thomas, the transfer from Mississippi State, other key receivers there for Carson Beck. Uh, Delp at tight end, obviously. I mentioned Love it. Uh, I believe, transfer from Missouri as well. So two key transfers. Not a lot of transfers on this Georgia roster, but you kind of get a look ahead to, hey, if you build the type of roster through recruiting, you can definitely target who you want those transfers to be. And two transfers making an impact in the receiving core for the Georgia Bulldogs. Will, Dejon Edwards in the backfield. How are we feeling about this running game from Georgia? I mean, it's not great, but it's not it's not awful. Like I said, the the overall they're ranked, um, you know, twenty second in yards per rush. I think for Florida, we would take that because <laughs> because Florida is not necessarily up there that high when it comes to running the ball. Um, but it's not a traditional Georgia. Just we're going to run over you the entire time and then add even more through st- with Stetson Bennett. Right, that's the over or the underrated part of losing Stetson Bennett is how many times did he prolong drives last year where it's say third and four, third and five. You get to him, you make the play, you blow up the play, and all of a sudden he's able to get out of the grasp of the defensive lineman and then make that run five, six, seven yards. And the, and the drive keeps going multiple times in that Ohio State game last year where that happened, where if there had been a more stationary quarterback, I think the Buckeyes win that game pretty handily. Beck isn't a statue back there, but he's also not that. And so um, he's not providing some giant benefit to the running game, um, which means the running game is good, but not great. And I think that's sort of um, that's sort of how I feel like I don't sit there and go. I'm not expecting Georgia run for 320 yards and just completely bowl over Florida. Of course, I would have said that a couple of weeks ago about Kentucky too. I expected them to be more, far more explosive through the air than on the ground. And Florida got absolutely run over. So, um, you know, look, gasp, gap, gap discipline is going to be critical. Georgia certainly has the athletes that if you give them a wide open lane to the end zone, they're going to be able to take it. You're not going to be able to catch them. So having the integrity to be in the right spot the entire time, which is one of the places where I think having the bye week is really going to help to be able to make sure they've established where they want their guys to be on certain plays. Um, but uh, not something I'm afraid of, but certainly not something I want to underestimate either, I guess is sort of where I'm at. All right, let's close out with predictions here, Will. Before you give me your score to the game, give me the flow. Give me the flow. What are you expecting from this game? Yeah, so I'm I'm expecting Florida's defense. So Florida's an interesting defense. They're ranked 40th overall in points per game. They're 95th in yards per play. And typically that yards per play is more indicative of the quality of a defense than the points per game. So they've been lucky and also have, have done a good job in the red zone. Um 
I think Georgia is going to be able to exploit the fact that they're 95th. And so I do think that this is going to be one of those that has to be a shootout if Florida is going to win. And I'm not sure that's a good thing to have to be in a shootout with the Georgia Bulldogs, considering the defense that they have. I think there's a lot of things Florida could do to try to get their running backs on linebackers, their tight ends on linebackers, whether they'll be able to do it consistently enough. I don't know. I don't think Ricky Pearsall has a huge game. I think there'll be a play. I think there'll be a plan in place from Georgia to try to prevent him from having a huge game, which means they're going to have to find um, yards and big plays elsewhere. Um, I don't necessarily, th- I, I don't believe in the offense given the quality of the defenses for South Carolina and Vanderbilt. And so, uh, you know, look, I just think Florida's a couple years away. There's no shame in that, but Florida's a couple years away. I've got Georgia winning 34 to 13. 34-13, so very, very similar feel to the Kentucky-Utah game. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe this one might feel a little bit closer early on. You get a couple of red zone stops, maybe it ends up being 27-13. to 13. I, I just I don't know where the yards are going to come from from Florida. I think with two weeks to prepare, Kirby Smart will have a plan to force Graham Mertz into stuff that uh, Mertz doesn't want to be in. And unless Florida has a distinct plan that's different than what they've done all year, like those flood routes, like what I would really like to see is them run a wheel route with the running back in the other direction of all the floods, right? So have everything flood to the right, play action to the right, and then turn, put your foot in the ground and throw it back to a running back coming the other way. But we don't have a Malik Davis in the backfield to catch that sort of ball right now um, like we did in 2020. And so I just think there's some limitations on the roster. I think there will be some opportunities to hit early on some big plays, but I think Florida's going to have to hit them all. And if they don't, then they're going to struggle to score. Well, unfortunately, I'm going to be a bummer here too and uh, say that I, I do think George is going to get this one. I got I got the dogs 23, uh, 30 to 23 over Florida. Uh, I do think that Florida is going to make them work for it, though. I think this Florida team, you saw Auburn play Georgia close. You obviously saw Kentucky get their doors blown off. So Georgia's got a couple different speeds in there. We'll see where Florida uh, fits in into that mold. However, I do think this game is much more gettable than I did in the preseason. Florida has done in the last few weeks, done more to uh, help me see that they can have a shot in this game. And maybe Georgia doesn't look as dominant, even though they have those stretches, Will. But there's going to be that key stretch. Can we stop the bleeding? The bleeding is going to come at some point. Can we limit it? Can we limit it? To go on a few drives in a row where they're moving the ball, Georgia moves the ball, can we hold to that field goal, right? So I expect Georgia to move the ball with ease. Can we miss a couple field goals? Can Can they miss a couple field goals? Can they come up with a couple key turnovers? Can they keep it close and make it interesting at the end? There is that scenario out there where Florida can shock the world, Will, but I do see Georgia coming away with this one, 30-23. But so we don't end on a on a low note heading into the Georgia game here, Will. What would an upset mean to Billy Napier and company if the Gators can pull off the uh, upset over George, the Georgia Bulldogs here in year two? Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it means an enormous amount, right? I mean, you're bowl eligible, first off. You essentially have guaranteed yourself seven wins because I, well, I guess I shouldn't put the Arkansas game in the win category, but given what's going on there with their, with their, with their offensive coordinator the past week and we, a we, win over Georgia, Billy Napier just beat Georgia, and you're already talking about Arkansas. Enjoy the moment, Will. Well, Enjoy the so moment. <laughs> what what I'm saying though is that you now have an opportunity. Like we came into this year going eight and eight and four, 
awesome. You have an opportunity to get there. 2-0 and over your rivals this year so far with LSU and FSU still on the horizon. And more than anything, it's this is the team that the fan base looks at and says, just don't embarrass us. Like, go out there and play well and make it a make it a hard-fought game. To pull out the win says a ton about the plan they're putting in place. You don't hear any questions about offensive coordinators. You don't hear any questions about scheme. You don't hear any questions about Austin Armstrong. Like, all that stuff for an entire week is just guys getting patted on the back, and congratulations. It would be a lot like after that win over Tennessee, except in a much, much bigger way, right? Because it happens in a neutral site. It happens against your biggest rival. It happens, or one of your biggest rivals. It happens against a team that, uh, you know, you're trying to catch. And so to put a win on the board, Napier all of a sudden one-on-one against Georgia, um, you know, and with these recruiting classes that are coming, you can feel that momentum building. So, yeah, I mean, if he gets a win here, it's enormous. Um, and, and I think beyond that, it also ruins Georgia's season, which is awesome, or at least puts them in a position where they have to win out to get to the playoff for the rest of the year. Um, I, I it, From a standpoint of just like the general direction of the program and the comfort that people would feel with it, I think the the amount of confidence that would go up in the staff and, and the program in general would be enormous. So uh, we've been humble in, in our approach here, I think, because if you look at the standings in the SEC East, which is something the last couple of years we haven't had to bother. We haven't had to bother checking the standings and doing scenarios in our head. You got the Georgia Bulldogs at four and zero sitting at the top of the East, and the Florida Gators at three and one, tied with the Missouri Tigers. Kentucky, uh, Missouri throttled Kentucky a couple of weeks back here, and uh, Kentucky's now got two losses, so they are in Florida's rear view rear view mirror here. And uh, if the Gators beat the Dogs on Saturday you're in the driver's seat for the sec east i mean you're in the driver's seat you still gotta get the job done right i mean the the thing is with kentucky with two losses if you have two losses you're still behind kentucky because the way you got beat um but obviously you know look you you beat georgia and it puts you like you said in the driver's seat you went out and you're in um you know what's it gonna it's spectacular we would have taken that no one was talking about that in the preseason. Nobody. Well, was look, buddy. About if, if you, I mean, if you'd have told me we went one and ten and we beat Georgia, or one and eleven and we beat Georgia, I might have taken it to come into the year. <laughs> so, so it's one of those things where, like, from an expectations perspective, every one of us had this game in the L category, and I suspect. If you ask him over a couple of drinks, if you ask Billy Napier, anybody on that staff, if they look ahead and mark, all right, which ones do we mark down as W's? Which ones do we mark as L's? And which ones do we mark as these are ones we have to get because they're sort of toss-ups? They would tell you that this was in the L category too, like if you could give them truth serum as well. Georgia is one of the elite programs in, in college football. They've won the last two national titles, and the last time they lost during the regular season was in 2020 against Florida. So to be able to go out, beat that kind of rival, hurt their season, hurdle yourself in front of them, and really launch yourself into the top 25, probably in the top 15 at that point, maybe. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah, it's 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 an enormous thing that uh that you know that Florida would be able to do. Now, what's it gonna take? I think it's gonna take like a Jordan Reed 20, 2012 type of game. I mean, you know, Florida turned the ball over six times in that game, looked completely discombobulated, and even still. 
every time Florida got the ball, you you expected it to finally click. You expected them to finally be able to take it down the field and get the win. They're going in there at the end. Um, looks like Jordan Reed's going to make it in for a touchdown. Ball gets knocked out. Georgia recovers. That's the end of the game. That's the sort of thing that it's probably going to take to get this win. But man, would that be? I'll take it, man. If they get that, if they get a win that way, I will. I will. Uh, I, the the post game read reaction show on Patreon will be a celebration. I can guarantee you that, buddy. Keep your shirt on. Well, keep your shirt on. Well, it yeah. all depends on what the Patreon people want, buddy. You got to gotta <laughs> give the pay and you got to give the pay and supporters what they want. It ain't that kind of website. It ain't that kind of website. We have to look into some different avenues there, though, of Georgia, if we end up beating Georgia. But yeah, I just want to throw the scenario out there. We are three and one. We're, we are in the thick of it here with the SEC East. And I know you still got LSU, still got Missouri down the road. But hey, it's. Uh, they're in position. They're in position, and it's going to be interesting here going into Jacksonville. But Florida, Georgia, Saturday, uh, I hate them, Will. I hate them every year. I don't care. I don't care if I go. I go in. I can be reasonable during the show. We can present reasonable cases to the audience. But by kickoff on Saturday, I'm going to hate Georgia with all my heart, and I'm going to hope we smoke them because there's nothing worse than losing to Georgia. And uh, I hope to see – a monster upset. Billy Napier's gotten it together on the recruiting recruiting trail. Let's see if uh, we can put this uh, final leg together here and get over the hump with Georgia after a tough couple of years. Oh man, I mean, again, I think 2020 we all came into that one hoping, and then it was 14 nothing real quick. And I'm sure there were a lot of people jumping ship in that game when it was 14 nothing. Kyle Trask leads him back. Um, this one's going to obviously have to be a little bit different, but look. Everything out there has this as like an 85-15 proposition, which means you play it 100 times, Florida's going to win 15 out of the 100, which means they got an opportunity. Last year, they didn't have a chance. Not a chance to win that game. And, uh, and you know, anybody anybody said they did, I, I hope I didn't pick them because – Maybe I did because I was leading with my heart rather than my head, but th- that was a rough one, right? I mean, and we've known for the past few years that Florida's overmatched. Florida is still, from a experience perspective and even from a talent perspective, overmatched, but it's getting closer. And uh, you know, look, there's Carson Beck is a rookie, and you put a rookie in there, and things start going wonky, and all sorts of, you know, you start to press, and when you press, you throw an interception, you throw an interception, you throw another one. You know, maybe they can get a fumble early on. Like this Florida defense hasn't gotten a lot of pressure, hasn't got a lot of turnovers. I think they're going to have to change that around this game, and hopefully Armstrong's dialed up some creative blitzes to be able to get to get to Beck, put a helmet in his back early on, let him know that you're going to be there all day, and maybe all of a sudden things change, and you're able to really make the Georgia defense or make the Georgia offense stymie. I think. You know, again, that Jordan Reed example for that game, that was what, like 17 to 12 or something was the score in that game. I think that's where you kind of have to be to win this one. If you're if you're trying to win a shootout where it's in the 30s, I think Florida's going to struggle to win that sort of game. I think they may need to in order to compete based on the way their defense has been playing. But, hey, stranger things have happened. And, yeah, I'm with you, man. Like, I can look at it and look at the stats and go, Florida's completely overmatched here when you look at the statistical profile. But we've also, I mean, you know, there have been games over the last few weeks where teams that Washington almost lost last week to to who was it Arizona State Arizona State yeah Arizona State you, yeah. you had uh, you had Virginia come out and beat North nope. Carolina so yeah. you know it's it's not as though there aren't times where teams come out and beat them 
you know, the problem is this is a rivalry game, so you expect Georgia to be just as up as Florida will be. But, you know, Georgia's got bigger fish to fry than Florida right now. Maybe they overlook them a little bit. Maybe they're looking forward to some of the games they've got on the roster. And, and you know, I mean, we talked about this all offseason that, you know, we all thought that the, that the dynasty was going to last forever back after 2008 when Urban Meyer took over. 2009, Florida goes 13-0 or 12-0, ends up in the SEC championship game, loses it, and everything's everything's done, right? They lose that one game, and then all of a sudden everything sort of fell off the table. And I'm not saying that's going to happen to Georgia, but there's wouldn't it be glorious if this was the game where Florida all of a sudden turned the tables, got the win, and then we look back five, six, seven years from now and go, that was the game where everything went downhill for Georgia from then on. And, hey, we're giant homers, so we can we can think that that might be the case. Oh, I love I love picturing that. Uh, last CBS game for a while, huh? Florida Georgia, last CBS game. So enjoy that CBS music, everyone. SEC and CBS. Uh, that's that's tough. That's a tough move. I I know. Yes, it's not going to matter that much at the end of the day. But I was like, I was like the SEC and CBS. I like that. It goes well together. Uh, Will last last uh, unrelated here to Florida Georgia thoughts on Harbaugh at Michigan. With the sign stealing, for those of you who aren't following closely, an analyst at Michigan has been accused of uh, really a lot of evidence has come forward about at this point, including his own Venmo trail. Really like the worst cover up for as good as the guy seems at spying. He's terrible at the rest of it because the trail's there all over the place. So including uh, the, the sheet that they you see on TV with the signs and everything. Hey, look. The big issue I think they're, they, that they're having right now is is the filming of the opponents, going to the games and filming opponents, more so than attempting to steal si- signals. I think that's probably common practice. Like I, I'm going to tell you, Will, I don't know if you're going to believe me or not, but I'm, I, I heard a rumor that Georgia paid football players before NIL was legal. <laughs> like The only thing I really know about the NCAA, the more, the more you watch college football is like – Rules are there's no one that really has a high horse in the NCAA. Like there's there's really no one that that could get up and talk about morals with a straight face too much in college football. I know it's technically against the rules what Michigan's doing, but uh, man, it's uh it's interesting to see the different the different uh, takes on it this week. Will. Well, I mean, so Stoops was straight out, straight out saying that Georgia bought its football players a couple of weeks ago, ad- admonishing, uh, <laughs> admonishing his boosters after that, that butt whipping. Whooped by got. Missouri too. Yeah. How about that? What's well, Missouri's and, budget there, Mark? Yeah, uh, Drinkwitz is. Uh, he's 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 bringing in some nil guys too. But uh, <laughs> like, I think I think what you said probably fits most people's attitudes about this, which is that cheating has been like the modus operandi within college football for years and years and years and years years um it's never you know we've always joked about where urban meyer buried his bags and how dan mullen needed to find them and uh you know those those jokes are not built in like you know in a vacuum they're built because look i think that the recruits that dan that urban meyer brought in were probably paid better than than they got paid at other places because that's the way markets work and when you put a black market in place that's what happens um I mean, I think what what people are mad at is that there was a specific rule passed that banned this sort of stuff, and then Harbaugh goes and does it anyway. Was and it then from I just the think nineties. They're saying it's an old maybe. rule. Maybe, and yeah. and then the thing is, is that I think Harbaugh just rubs a lot of people the wrong way anyway. And so the fact that it's Harbaugh, like if it had been, uh, if it had been Lane Kiffin, you would you'd see the same stuff. Um, if it was Saban, they'd be like, oh, that guy always looking for an edge. 
Like, look at that. That's why he's the goat. Um, you know, the, the good news is, is that we know now to test all of, uh, all of Michigan's footballs to make sure they're fully inflated from here on out, because that is the next step in the scandal is to deflate the footballs before you go out on the field, the Patriots, uh, line there. Well, I mean the well, I mean the Patriots were recording all the signals and stuff way before Harbaugh was. So, um, you know, do do we take away the Patriots and uh, NFL champ, the Super Bowl championships because of the Spygate stuff that was going on there? Now, Goodell burned all the evidence as opposed to this guy leaving it all on Venmo about where he was at. But uh, look, I, I think <laughs> I coach a little league team, and we adjust signals when we recognize that the opposition knows what our signals are. And I'm talking like 11 year olds who, when you change signals, they immediately go nuts and start missing signals all over the place, but we still do it. Right. I mean, we still have the ability to change it and communicate with them and those sorts of things. And even use to our advantage, the fact that if they know our signals, we can make an, we can make an adjustment that looks similar so that they start thinking that we're doing something when we're not. And there was a story, I think about uh, Orgeron, when LSU was playing Clemson, where Venables had been suspected of doing this sort of stuff when he was at Clemson, and all of a sudden they got stopped a few few drives in a row against Clemson, <laughs> and then Orsheron went over to his offensive coordinator and said, change up the signals, and the minute they did, all of a sudden they started scoring. And so, look, you're a bad coach if you don't have the ability to change up your signals when the opposition has it and uh, you know at least think to try that as things go. Everybody looks for an edge. Harbaugh's looking for an edge. He got caught. The NCAA will do nothing because the NCAA has no power. And, uh, you know, Harbaugh will be in the NFL next year. Nobody will care about it. So I did a I did a video on the 97 Florida-Florida State game with Steve Spurrier, uh, the, the greatest game ever played in the swamp where the Gators beat the number one Knowles uh, in the last-minute drive there with Freddie T. Jack was green and Freddie T going off there. He swapped quarterbacks every other play because he was worried that Florida State had their signals. <laughs> so he, he had them come in from the sideline so that there were no signals. So that's one of the one of the pieces of logic behind. I know the the, the head ball coach used to uh, like to play with quarterbacks a lot there, but that was one of the biggest piece of, pieces of logic he used to uh, rotate uh, Noah Brindice and Doug Johnson in the 97 FSU game. So it, it, it's – it's a tale as old as time in college football. I think it's something that a little more high tech, I guess, kind of high tech. You're sending guys to the games and having their whip out their cell phones on the, in the, in the bleachers there. That's not super, a super high tech operation. I suppose. This feels but, like uh, something you could just see in HD with the all 22. Yeah. It, it's uh, I don't know. It, it, look, is it technically against the rules? Yes. But Man, it's college football. What are we talking about? Do I about? care? No. Would I care? If, would I care if he'd have beaten Florida last year in a big time game? Heck yeah, I'd care. <laughs> so, so if I was TCU, maybe I'd care a little bit. Oh wait, TCU figured it out. Certainly, yeah, I'm pretty sure they did okay. I'm pretty sure maybe they uh, didn't go to enough TCU. If games, I was Georgia I from the playoff game a couple years. Oh wait a minute. Like so, it turns out that still having better players really makes a difference. Dude, I saw a post from Reddit where where a Michigan fan had put, "Wait until they figure out that Harbaugh's worst season by far was the COVID year where nobody was in the stands." on that so <laughs> enjoyed that but also just laughing at the comments with this but if, if you think that florida or florida state or, or miami or come on this it's big time college football there, there's probably uh some sort of espionage going on all over the place so 
this is kind of a, a non-starter. But do you think this is going to push Harbaugh into the NFL? I mean, I think Harbaugh is going to the NFL anyway. That's kind um, of yeah. and and so I think the fact that he's sort of gotten Michigan back on track and will be able to leave them, or at least would have been able to leave them in good stead um, when he left. I think that was probably important to him. Um, you know, he took, but he took a pay cut a couple of years ago because of that bad year in 2020. Um, did he take that personally? I, I don't know. Right, Jim and Harbaugh so- probably. <laughs> Likely, <laughs> perhaps. So, based on yeah. what I, based on what everybody seems to know about Jim Harbaugh, we're going to go with likely on that one. We're well, and again, this is it's it, so it's a different situation, but it's similar to. I guarantee you, everybody who who saw Spurrier coming to town just hated Spurrier when he was their rival. Like I guarantee you, Georgia hated him, Tennessee hated him, even Florida State probably hated him, even though they got him more often than than other people did. And, you know, he had the folksy charm and he'd send out the barbs and all that sort of stuff. And people are probably like, oh, he's an arrogant, you know, SOB, whatever. And Florida fans love him, right? And I think that's probably the same thing with Michigan is those fans are going to circle around the wagons because of this specific um, this specific example and some of the other things. And the people at Michigan love him, people at Ohio State and the people at, uh, at Penn State hate him. And, uh, you know that's the way it should be right like you should like it, color in college football makes a difference and if everybody was just tom osborne out there you know running the triple option and there was no uniqueness to it none of us would be interested the fact that we have these characters who really are the ones who are in your lives right i mean like i, I can't name you any of the one and done guys at duke for the last like 20 years but shashevsky was the face of that organization same thing with bowden being the face of florida state and then spurrier and urban meyer being the face of florida and right now you got ryan day is he really the face of ohio state that's one of the things they got to figure out harbaugh is the face of michigan Dabo's the face of clemson all those sorts of things so um you know that's sort of the way college football's always been is these head coaches are the face of the program and the fact that they get to be the ones who do the cheating just means that we get to have the uh the the moral discussions about stuff while we're you know destroying 18 year old kids brains playing this sport. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's other things probably more important than uh, whether Jim Harbaugh's stealing signals, I guess is my yeah, point. Yeah. Occupying a lot of time in the media, the conversation this week though. So I wanted to bring it up and see what you thought. Uh, Florida, Georgia week, best week of the year. If we win, if we win, otherwise, Tough Sunday. Tough Sunday if we lose, but hopefully the Gators pull off a shocker here and take the driver's seat of the SEC East. For Will Miles, I'm Nick Newton. We'll see you next week, and go Gators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction. Or you can go to patreon.com slash read and reaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.